All right, it's the DT difference. It's 30 years experience in the game. DT systems. E-collars we've been using for a while now, but let's quickly talk about their dummy launchers. They got the Super Pro dummy launcher and the remote dummy launcher. It's a great way for you and your dog to get ready for duck season. Loud bangs. Make sure your dog's cool with gunfire before you use it. But I want you to add it to your repertoire, bag of tricks, and get you and your dog ready for duck season. It's the Super Pro Dummy Launcher by DT. Hashtag man's best kennel, baby. That's Gunner Kennels. Man, let's talk about these crates because when it hits the fan, you want your dog protected. It's an investment emotionally and financially to keep your hunting buddy safe. If you'd like to get into a Gunner Kennel, slide into the DMs and we'll hook you up. But do your best friend a favor and keep them safe this duck season. Force fetch. What is it? It's super intimidating to so many people, yet it's not that difficult. I built a step-by-step process that helps you understand it. You and your dog can be successful in it, and it takes the intimidation away of the process so that you and your dog can get to your goals. That's what it's built for. Let me teach you how I do it so that you and your dog can do it. Different breeds, different personalities, problem solving, and more. Check it out. Links in the description. The Force Fetch Course. Baby. going on everybody and welcome to another episode of lone ducks gun dog chronicles i don't know what episode we're on so just roll with me baby roll uh we've got a great episode coming at you i'm super excited we've got our favorite guest he would like me to mention favorite guest he is a third timer on lone ducks gun dog chronicles we've got blaine the pterodactyl carnecchion um, as you all know, I'm down here in North Georgia training at his facility for the next few weeks. We're waiting on, uh, waiting out the coronavirus, and uh, I'm excited to have him on. We're going to talk some in-depth training uh, regarding swim-by. So last week, if you haven't listened to it, we talked about T-pattern and breaking down T-pattern, and today we're going to talk about what to do after T-pattern and how to handle in the water. So it's going to be really informative, but first... A quick word from our sponsors. Yukonuba Sporting Dogs. Great food that we feed all our dogs. Fuels their hearts, minds, body, and soul to do great work for us every single day. At a baby, Blaine. Yukonuba, baby. Next up, big thank you to Traeger Grills for supporting the outdoor industry and everything we love. You know, Kevin loves smoking meat, and so does Blaine. So if you're interested, Learn yourself a little bit more about Traeger Grills, Gunner Kennels. Blaine, you got some Gunner Kennels, don't you? I do. Got two in the back of the Tundra every day. What size do you have? We use the intermediate for the Boykins and a large for the Labs. The intermediate seems to work perfect for any size Boykin and a small Lab. Love them. That's very awesome. cool. What uh, what color you got rocking in your back of your Tundra there? The the old school brown, the original Gunner Brown. Oh, gee, that's awesome, man. They're great. No doubt. So thank you to Gunner Kennels. We've got Waypoint Outdoor Collective. These are the guys who 
bring you Lone Ducks Gundog Chronicles, as well as a bunch of other podcasts and influencers. So if you'd like to learn more, check out Waypoint Outdoor Collective. Baby. And lastly, I'd like to thank Bush Light for getting us through the Corona virus. And I want to let everybody know we're doing a sweet contest with Bush Light. We're teaming up with them. We're really excited about this little partnership. So Bush Light and the Lone D are going to work out a contest, and it's going to drop sometime the end of this week into the weekend. So stay tuned. Now let's get into the show. Pterodactyl, thank you for joining us, my friend. You're welcome. Always great to be with Lone D. (laughs) (laughs) Baby. (laughs) Well, we're glad you're here. Now, just to catch up, up, uh, we talked last week about T-Pattern, okay? So re-listen to that. We're not going to go over it again. But I want to get Blaine's point of view on post-T-Pattern. So when his dog is through and complete T-Pattern, Blaine, now what do you do? We then go out into a new field. We set up a series of pattern blinds, usually three of them spaced way far apart, 100 yards apart, and we mark them with a white pole, a white bucket. We teach the dog where the blind is. We continue to move back as the dog learns where the blind is, only to get some confidence up on leaving on back in a new place other than tea field and working on looking out, looking on work on running hard and going straight. All right. So one thing that some people will have trouble with is lack of confidence. So if they notice that the dog isn't looking out or is no going, what do you suggest that they do? I always suggest to simplify, move up closer to the pole, uh, mark the pile, have a, have a bird boy or yourself can do it. Sit your dog 20 yards from the pile, back up towards the pile and throw a bumper into the pile, walk back to them, stay back. Um, if they're having that much trouble with it, then maybe we're not ready to move on to it. Very good. Very good. So now how long do you think you run these style pattern blinds per dog is probably different. Yeah, but typically that first set of pattern blinds goes pretty good. We don't run the same ones over and over and over much more than about a week's worth, not without adding some new suction into the field. Um, We like to add a holding blind you know, close to the line to those pattern blinds to add some distraction, to add some suction to the blinds. Um, we'll move to another field, set three new ones up, and just continue to work on the confidence and continue to work on leaving and going to a, you know, an unknown location. That second field, we're typically not going to, you know, work as hard as identifying everything unless needed. Now, Blaine, I have a question. Uh, when you say, like, adding suction in the field and stuff, like, what can you give me an example of what that might look like for the folks at home? Yes, sir. At a hunt test, when you start to run senior and you get into master, your blind is always going to be impacted by something else out in the field, something else that went on, whether it was a mark, whether it was a dry shot in the field, 
whether it was a, a gunner, something out there, a hillside, a strip of cover, a log, there's something out there that the judges are using to try to see how well your dog is trained. A blind is, is all taught, you know, things. It's not natural. It's, it's going to an unknown place, and they want to see if the dog is, is willing to work with you as a team regardless of what's going on in the field. So, you know, we're going to add, you know, something as simple as just putting a chair out. Uh, we'll put an empty chair just in the field close to the lines of the blind. Sometimes I'll then, if dogs do good with that, I'll add a person sitting in the chair, uh, maybe with a boom gun, and we'll come out of a, you know, we'll come to the line and we'll get a shot in the field and then run the blind past the gunner because um, those dogs are used to seeing you know a mark come from them gun stations and so that's going to add a, a lot of suction to a young dog that's not run blind yet nice that makes sense very good all right how long do you think you're running these pattern blinds and teaching lamb lines before you advance to water for me i want them to run a full blind pretty good to the season senior level to leave every time I stay back to stop when I blow a whistle and to change direction with me. I'm not looking for precision yet, but I want them to change direction and make progress to the blind and, you know, work with me pretty well and, and understand the cast well enough to, you know, begin to incorporate that on the water. So I want to, I want a season level blind. And it, in my opinion and your opinion, when you have a dog that's capable of doing that seasoned level blind on land, they have more comfortable confidence when you take them to water to do swim by. Yeah, I think most of the time, but I think you still see a good bit of hesitation and confusion uh, when you hit when you hit swim by and you hit water to you or, you know, whatever you want to call it. I mean, swim by is just another way of saying sea work on water. Um, and so it's something new, and I don't think it always translates, you know, perfectly, and that's how we do it. You know, that just because a dog can handle on land doesn't mean they're going to handle on water because um, there's even more suction on the water for a dog to beach early or return back on land, and obviously we're trying to teach the dog not to do that. But but to the point is, instead of going straight from key pattern to swim by, you like to use land blinds and pattern blinds to build confidence so your transition to water should be more seamless. Should being the key word. Absolutely. Yes, sir. Say that one more time. Absolutely. I'm not saying anything. <laughs> uh, so, all right. Now, uh, an aspect of this that I would say might be a little controversial would be forced to water. And a lot of people will say, like, my dog loves swimming. My dog loves water, all that jazz, never had a problem. Why do we still do it? Well, people's dogs love to run in the field, too, and we still teach them how to handle on, on you know, on dry ground. <clears throat> Wow, that's a really you good point. To, Never thought of it like that. I haven't eaten until just now. <laughs> <laughs> that's why the professional, baby. 
Yeah, it makes sense. But, you know, a dog has to, you know, they like to do something, but we need to have them do it on our terms. And as soon as you put things on our terms and when we want you to do it and our way of doing it, sometimes you get a dog that wants to buck the system and be a little stubborn or, or you know, be a little gutless and not want to do it the way we want them to do it. And so, you know, water force is mandatory for me, no matter how much the dog likes water. Um, and we're going to take them through water force. It doesn't take long, usually a couple of days, you know, two or three sessions. And, you know, with most dogs, we've got what we want on that, but we are still going to do it regardless of their love for the water. All right. So now let's break down as best we can, you know, using maybe force to a pile on land and then transition to water and how, what that looks like for you. Well, for me, the, the water force um, process is it's pretty simple. I think it's even simpler than force to pile on land uh, because you've gone through force to pile on land and, you know, they understand back means to get away from me. Um, but the way I do it, and I think is pretty common among most trainers and, and people that have dealt with dogs for a long time is, um, we're going to get pretty close to the water's edge and we're going to have a, an opportunity on either side for them to run around the water. Uh, not so much a channel blind, so to speak, but still an opportunity for them to not get directly into the water right away. And at first I'm going to pitch the bumper into the water five, 10 yards away. And I'm going to say back and they're going to get the water, get the bumper and come back. It's going to be fun for a couple tosses. Um, after that, I'm going to stay back and I'm going to put a little bit of collar pressure on them uh, until they get into the water. The moment they get in the water, the pressure goes away. But I'm still, they're still seeing me throw the bumper into the water. They understand that's what we're trying to go get. And they're not leaving for an unknown destination at this point. I'm going to continue to move on. Uh, I'll, I'll back away from the water's edge so that they have a bigger decision to make because I want them to decide that, you know, my priority is to get in the water as quick as I can. And so I'm going to, you know, pitch the bumper still into the water, stay back, and now they have, you know, 10 or 15 yards to, to run before they get in the water. And the pressure is going to stay on until they get into the water and try to get that, you know, that compulsion to be in as quick as possible. And so eventually I want to be able to keep the bumper in my hand line them up for the water, say back, and they leave on their own with nothing being thrown and get in the water as quick as possible. The moment the dog hits the water, I try to time my throw where the bumper is going to hit the water out in front of them so they're rewarded for doing the right thing. And they get the bumper, the pressure goes away, and life is good again. And so we just continue to work on that till the dog's almost breaking. So the dog comes back with that bumper, take it from his mouth, and he's wanting to leave to get back in the water. Um, when I get to that point, I feel like I'm in their head a little bit and they understand the idea is to get away, get in the water. Um, you know, not a lot of pressure for most dogs, just enough for them to realize that, you know, the pressure goes away when I do what he's asking me to do, which is get in the water, just like force fetish, just like force to pile. When they leave on force to pile and you give a continuous, you know, simulation until they get to the pile and get a bumper, it's the same idea. So I do it just a tad bit different, and I That'd like it. You're funny. 
This is our. Right, we're gonna cancel the podcast. Let's just cut it off right now. Yeah. No, I'm kidding. So I I, I like what he does where he's throwing a bumper into the water uh, versus having a pile on the other side. It's it's more positive and helps that dog's momentum. Um, but I do transition to a pile on the other side of like a swim by pond. Yeah, I do too. I just I do the two drills in a separate part of the pond. I'm not going to use the pile of my swim by for my force to water pile. Okay, that's a great addition. Heck yeah! All right, so I had a dog one time, the Dutch Rudder. His name was Dutch. He was a German short-haired pointer, and what had happened was I would force him to water. He'd haul butt, get in the water, and then when the pressure was off in the water, he'd swim in a circle in the water and wouldn't continue going to the pile. These are weird things that happen, right? Like, it doesn't always go according to plan. Not every dog does it perfectly. So this is going to be my example of I had to get creative and succeed. And what I ended up doing is backing up, reforcing on land, and making it super clear to him, you have to get in the water, you have to swim across that pile. And once I did that, force to water was seamless. Um, I mean, if I threw a bumper, like Blaine was saying, if I threw a bumper near him, he'd still swim in a circle and pick it up. Like, you could yell fetch, you could nick him, you could do whatever. It was a bear. But what I realized is there had to have been a breakdown in the process like those building blocks that I had taught him, he must not have grasped the turn the pressure off to the bumper, to the pile enough. So then it broke down and I didn't have success when I went to the next step. So I backed up, revisited it. And in a week he was doing it fine on water, but I bet for two or three days, I'm sitting there thinking, why, why, why? And I'm trying, I'm trying. And then I finally said, all right, slow down, back up. Let's fix this thing. Um, but old Dutch Rudder man, every step of his training, he'd give me a run for my money. Gotta love those pointers. <laughs> well, I was about to say it was a pointer, nevertheless. But anyways, it was a great example of things not a, going according to plan, and you having to adjust, reevaluate what you've done, and and take two steps back to move forward again. All right, Blaine. So now I got a question. Let me let me jump in and cut you off though. Like, what are some? Are there any other things that people usually run into, or that you hear about, or things like that, like that you encountered with Dutch that maybe Blaine has had happen, or like that people at home might be like, okay, cool. Well, you know, like he said, not everything goes according to plan, but this happened to me. Are there any other like usual mishaps that you guys might encounter? For water force, I mean, the typical problem you're going to have with a dog that doesn't have a strong desire to be in the water all the time is just no going and not going. Um, you know, I think that's a different problem altogether that you've got to, you know, work through and try to, you know, build up their desire to be in the water probably before you got to that point because you probably knew the dog was struggling in water before you got to that point. And you didn't address it early enough and then you get the water force and see it crop back up. And I think some people think, well, I'll just do water force and make it do it. But 
you know, it's like everything else, dog training. I'd rather the dog like to do it a little bit before I start putting pressure on, you know, that objective. And, um, you know, no going, not getting the water on water force once you quit throwing the bumper into the water or onto the pile like Bob does. Um, and, and that's kind of why I like to throw the bumper into the water each time, too, because I typically don't get that reaction. Um, but I have had I've had situations come up on swim by that were you know out of the ordinary uh, a lot more than I do on on water force and we can dive into that I guess in a few minutes when we get to that point. Yeah, I agree. So now we've got a dog who we've created this desire and have taught him or her that getting in the water is a positive experience and you're rewarded with a bumper at the other end. And to turn that pressure off quickly means get in the water. They're running pattern blinds and good seasoned or senior level land blinds. They're stopping on a whistle and understand that. Now it's time for swim by. All right, pterodactyl, what do we do? Well, I go to your step in water force and I, you know, identify a pile now in my swim by pond. And a lot of people want to know well, what does a swim by pond look like. So I guess we can talk about that right now. Um, I have I have one built that was built specifically for swim by, and it's a small rectangular section on my pond. Um, you know, people always want to know what the dimensions should be. I don't think there's a has to be the, these exact dimensions, but you know, anywhere from you know 20 yards across to about 30, 40 yards wide seems to be a good you know, a good set of dimensions for me, uh, especially for Boykins who are going to swim a little slower just because they've got such shorter legs and I don't need to, to watch the dog swim 80, 90 yards across the pond to do swim by to teach the things I want to teach. But it's a, you know, a rectangular shape uh, pond with land on at least three sides so that you can, you know, teach the whole point of swim by, which we'll get into in just a minute. But um you know, I'm going to start off by identifying that back pile and I'm going to have big white bumpers, hopefully that they can see from the line. I'm going to, you know, reinforce that force to water again and make sure that they, you know, go get in the water, swim across the pond and get a bumper and then proceed directly back to me. Um, I'm trying not to put too much pressure from my side at that point. I'll, I'll do a lot of front. I'll have them sit down in front of me and just cast them back into the water. And as soon as they turn and head towards the water, I might put a little pressure on uh, at that point to get them in the water. But the first, you know, first session of it, I'm probably not putting a lot of pressure on them in the water to drive them to the pile yet. Um, but typically they know exactly where it is because they, because they can see it. And so there's not much confusion there. Um, I know a lot of people don't have swim by ponds. They don't have access to it. And, you know, you have to be a little bit creative uh, with, with whatever water you have, but there's lots of ways to, you know, to get it done on any kind of, you know, a cove of a big lake or, you know, a small cattle pond, something there's, there's gotta be something around you close that you can use and, and get creative with to, to be able to utilize this drill. I had uh, a buddy of mine who would use retention ponds. So like kind of near a Walmart or a mall or whatever, there's little retention ponds and, and they are roughly the size of a swim by pond, not super huge round 
you kind of want a rectangle in, in essence. Right. You, you got to have, you have to have the opportunity to have the dog get out dry on land, get a bumper, and then have the capacity to cast them back into the water. You know, that's what you're looking for in the pond. And, you know, sometimes you only have that on one side of the pond uh, that you're using because it's too big. And so, you know, you can run it from one side and do a, you know, the left over swim by, and then you can flip around and run it and do the right over swim by, you know, going to the same side pile, but to the dog, it's opposite. They don't know, you know, any different. And so, you know, you can do it on a variety of different kind of ponds. You just have to be creative and, and think through the process and the point of the drill. That when I'm in Charleston, I don't have a swim by pond and that's how I do it. It's just like a little cove and I can cast them left. I switch sides. I cast them right. So that's how I got to do it. Um, all right. First, we've got our back pile. We've established a back pile. We've done force to water. You are, for me, I don't incorporate overs or anything. I get them. I teach them how to sit to the whistle in the water. How about you and how do you do it? Yeah, once I establish that back pile, then I'm going to start stopping them in route to the back pile. And hopefully they tread water pretty easily. To go back to your mishaps and force to water, I had a boykin one time named Heidi who ended up being a hunt retriever champion when she was two years old, which is, you know, phenomenal for a boykin. Um, but when we got to swim by, she could not tread water. I would stop that dog and she would freak out. She would stop and she would turn around and look at me and then she would start splashing her front legs and water would start splashing up in her face and she'd start barking and biting and spinning around in circles and there was no treading of water and just kind of floating out there and it was a hassle to deal with. Um, I'll get into how we dealt with it later on in the conversation. I think it'll be uh, a little better towards the end of the swim by conversation, but I do. I, I teach them. I typically teach them the right back first. I stop in the water and teach the right back and, you know, get it, you know, pretty solid and consistent. And then I teach the left over. And then you teach the left back and then the right over? Correct. Why don't you do it simultaneously left and right backs? Like do right backs and then do left backs. The same reason I don't do it on land, on on sea work, because I want the two casts to be totally different and be pretty clear what I'm asking them to do, because I don't want to teach the right back, the left back, and then start teaching a leftover or a right over that's going to look a lot like, you know, for the dog to see my right hand pop up right away, it's going to assume I'm trying to get it the big back. And so I teach the exact opposite, so I go left over. And it's a total different look for the dogs. And that's that's why I do it, if that makes sense. It does. I guess the, the thing that pops in my head is it's another way to simplify and get success instead of beating your head against the wall. Why is he digging back when I'm giving him an over or vice versa? Because right. I, I think they're at first they're nervous. And they're looking at your body and your hand, and they're seeing that right side of your body move. Let's say we're talking about a right back and a right over. They're seeing your right side move. They're anticipating because you've 
put pressure on the right back uh, already. And now they're seeing your right hand move a little bit, and they're going to instinctively, I think, just try to turn and dig back to the right. And so I'll keep the opposite cast. Very good. I know that you want to talk about Heidi and swimming and treading water poorly later, but I think now would be the time. Like, if I blow a whistle and I'm teaching a back cast, they don't always turn and stare at you. They'll turn and look at you and then look back at the pile and keep swimming. They'll do a full 360 in the water and keep swimming. They'll splash straight up and they're going to start sinking. I mean, I know how I kind of help them and handle it, but what what are you doing? I have a golden sink, too. I'd blow the whistle and she'd stop and she'd start thinking. I thought I was going to have to go out and rescue her a couple times. Um, nevertheless, on, on, we'll talk about Heidi. Um, with Heidi, I just had to get her and get her. I would go, hey, 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 beep, 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 whatever, with the bumper in my hand, waving it around, get her to stop long enough to at least quit splashing, quit barking, and then I would, you know, I would handle. I went through the swim by process with her, and she never quit doing, but she would do the swim by. And so I talked to someone else. I talked to another trainer, and I told him about it. And I said, this is what the dog's doing. I can, the dog will do swim by. The dog handles off of land back into the water, but it cannot tread water. He told me, don't worry about it. Stop running water blinds. It'll go away. Inevitably, after about three days, it did. Um, she never had, a, you know, never had trouble with it anymore. She would... And and Heidi would always turn to her left once she figured out, and she would drift out to the left. So when we had a down the shore blind where the shoreline was on the right, I was good to go because she was always going to drift away from that land. Um, but she just she just worked her way out of it. But I try to get the dog's attention if they're spinning circles, if they're you know splashing water and freak, you know water freaking like some people call it, or they're just you know they're not concentrating on you. I'm gonna you know make it fun, get a bumper in my hand. As soon as they, you know, stop for at least one second and look at me, I'm going to toss the bumper to the pile and pass them to it. And hopefully they'll learn eventually if I stop and, and slow down and, and focus on, you know, on him, then I'll get what I want. Yeah. I do the same thing. I kind of coach them through it almost where set, good, tweet, good, set. Hey, hey, look, you know, look at me. Hup, hup, hup. Beep, 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 eight, eight, eight. And uh, I'm, all I'm doing is just holding their attention longer and longer and longer getting my cast. If they're freaking out, I'll tend to cast quicker and then in time start increasing the, like, the amount of time they'll have to watch me. And, and I think that helps some of them. Some of them, I kind of think they're screwing with me. And so I'll make them wait longer and I'll, Hey, good dog. Tweet. Hey, all right. Back. Um, but it's all, each dog's different. I'm just trying to coach them that it's okay to calm down and then go. Yeah. And, and sometimes I'll use collar pressure. If it's a dog that I think screwing with me and not wanting to stop and wanting to just dig back to the back pile, then I'm going to use the same, you know, collar pressure on sit that I did on Lancy. And, you know, sit, knit, sit. And yell sit. 
get them to look at me like I did on T pattern and then cast them. Yeah, that's a good point. I think that, you know, sometimes you need to use pressure. Sometimes you need to use the collar for it. Um, so that's a good addition. Well done, Tarnecki, the pterodactyl. Cacao. Um, all right. So now we've got a dog taking right backs, left overs, then left backs and right overs. We're not done yet. Now what? Well, as soon as I teach that left over, I'm going to begin teaching the swim by from that left side. The way I do it, and I, you know, made my pond the size I did, and the, the way I did for a reason, so that when I handle the dog to that left side, I can run around to the right over where I'm going to try to get him to swim by too, and I'm going to call him to me from there and get him to swim back to that side of the pond. And I'm going to do that, you know, four, five, six times before I'm going to try to get him to swim by without me over there. Uh, for some dogs, I'm going to identify that overpile. Let's say I'm teaching the leftover and I'm trying to get him to swim back to the right side. I'm going to teach the leftover from the right over. If that makes sense, I'm going to stand where the right over is. I'm going to pitch a bumper over to the left over, send them on back, let them go over to that pile, and then call them back to me so they know that I want them to swim back over here. And so I'm teaching them, you know, just by being over there, calling them to me, you know, swim back over to this side. Once I get them doing that really well, and for a lot of dogs, it only takes a couple times, then I'm going to handle them to the left over pile and I'm going to walk to the left side where when I, when that dog gets out, gets that bumper, I'm going to blow a sit whistle, get them to stop moving, look at me and I'm going to cast them to the right back over to that pile that I've been calling them to me when I'm standing there. And then I'm going to walk with them down the shore. You know, some people say more water, some people just say over. Some people don't say anything. They just walk with their dogs. Um, I know Evan Graham in Smart Work, he's going to teach the command more water um, for the dog to stay in the water and to, you know, because the dog a lot of times are going to start coming towards you, you know, where you are and of swim by you. And so he'll give a back cast with pressure and say more water to get the dog to dig back. Um, you know, I think Stephen Durrance uses the command no to get him to dig back and get away from you. And so there's lots of different things you can do. I try to just walk with them, giving them that walking overcast the whole time um, and, you know, putting a little pressure on them to, to learn the same way they learned on the water course that when they get, you know, all the way across the pond, the pressure goes away, they're free again. To back there. All right. I would say one of the most common things, and you, you did gently touch on it, but I, I want to, talk more about i think one of the most common things is the dog picks up the bumper at the left pile it'll cast back into the water but then it's not clear that it needs to swim by you and go to the right pile if you will the right over so it'll veer towards you and then you're going to cast it back that's how i do it as well but sometimes they don't do it true Oh, yeah. A lot of times they don't do it. That's 
Right. You know, when I'm going to move back over to that right pile and I'm going to reteach it again. If I don't think the dog understands what I'm asking it to do, you know, I'm going to be sure that this dog knows. I've got a dog right now, very, very talented dog. I think it's one of the best young boykins I have, but he is being a SOB with this stage right here. He wants to, he wants to be in the water. He will go on the way in the water the whole time. He'll swim down the shore to get to a bird or get to a bumper. But the moment he gets that bird, when he's on dry ground, he's going to do everything possible to get back as quick as he can. And he knows the quickest way is to get on dry land and run to me. And so he's been a little bit of a butt doing it. And I've had to, you know, alter my ways of, of dealing with him a little bit. And, you know, actually today I made some pretty good headway with him and had my assistant with me showing her, you know, here, here's how I'm dealing with this situation I have with this dog. And I'm going over to the right over pile more and I'm pitching bumpers over that left pile and, you know, making him more comfortable with taking his time and swim back to me rather than getting on the shore and running. And so, you know, today, you know, by the end of the session, we were getting a cast off the land into the water. And with a dog like him, who I know his first instinct is going to come straight to me, I'm putting pressure on a back cast and I'm casting him back to that back pile and getting him to dig back there because I know he knows where that one is and knows where he's supposed to go when I say back. And so as soon as he starts digging back and gets halfway there, then I'm changing it to an over and casting him across the pond. And it's, and it's working for him. That, that's exactly how I handle it as well. I'll try and simplify, like you're saying, and then if they aren't getting it, then I'm going to put pressure on a back cast, get them to swim back into the center, further than the center of the pond, almost the back pile, tweet, cast again. And then through repetition and success, they'll swim in the center, if you will, yeah. not keep trying to come back to me. Exactly. And, and with, with this particular dog, he can take a, you know, it doesn't make him a better dog or a worse dog, but he can handle a lot of pressure. And so I don't, you know, I don't have a problem putting pressure on him on that back cast because it's not going to hurt his desire to be in the water. It's not going to hurt his desire to go when I say back. He doesn't care. And so it's, you know, it enables me to do it that way. And I can give him a pretty good correction on back and make sure that little joker gets back in the water and swims a little bit. And once I got him in, I can handle him over that over pile. Um, and so it's not always so seamless. You know, for some of them it is. Usually for me, I can get a good dog that, you know, is pretty smart and understands how to, you know, how to turn off the pressure by getting back in the water. Usually it only takes about six days, five or six days to get through swimming by, you know, where it took me three or four weeks, you know, to really get tea work, you know, ingrained in the mouth and land. Yeah, I agree. And, you, and you I know what think I want to jump in on? What we've already... Sorry. You know what yeah. I want to jump in on a little bit? You, you guys seem to really agree on a lot of different things um, regarding swim by, and I guess I'll, you have similar training philosophies, which is probably why you guys get along or uh, pretend to get along. Uh, what sort of training things, after we talk about and finish up on swim by, like, but before I forget, what do you guys disagree on? Like, is there any training things where you guys have been training together and been like, oh man, I don't do that at all? I would do it this way. You're wrong. You know what I'm trying to say? 
Yeah, I know what you're trying to say. Um, I'm trying to think of a good example. Well, uh, yeah. So I'm think sure about at the it. End we can of, finish up. Bob's winter stay down here. I'll have some examples of why he's wrong, um, <laughs> and you know why I'm right. <clears throat> but you know, the, a drill like swim by is not rocket science. It's not something you need to reinvent the wheel and figure out a different way to do it. It works. Um, there's a there's a discussion, me and Bob was talking about it earlier, there's a, a discussion that popped up today on Facebook where, you know, the question was asked, do you do swim by or do you just, you know, go straight into teaching, you know, pattern blinds on water like you did on land and, and go straight into, you know, handling on, you know, on water. And, you know, I, I think that's a mistake. I think you need to go through the drill. You know, there's a reason we do it. You know, it's a fundamental skill that we need to teach the dog to be dry with a bumper in its mouth, stop them and handle them back into the water and to be able to handle them in the water with a bumper in their mouth, you know, so that we can teach a dog the correct way to go to a mark and back from a mark. Everybody thinks, well, it's all about, you know, teaching a dog to run water blinds, but you know, it's, it's far more than that. And so it's, it's a fundamental drill that I think you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't skip over. Um, that's going to help your dog in so many ways in dealing with water better. And so, you know, we're not going to have much disagreements on, you know, I think swim by and the, the reasoning behind it and the way you do it, because, you know, there's really, you know, one good way to do it. Yeah. I think there's a lot of things that I've learned from Blaine or other people I've trained with where we aren't that much different but there's little tidbits that that they'll do where it makes it easier on them, makes it easier on the dog. Uh, it, I wouldn't say it skips a step by any means. Like there, I, I'm not, I can't even come up with an example. Like nobody showed me X where it made me not have to do Y, but maybe it made getting to Y easier. You know, pitching the bumper when you're doing an overpile, uh, and they're really struggling with going over. You know, they just want to dig back, or they're struggling with swimming or treading water. And what do they do? And how do they help that dog be successful and learn that it's okay? And and you just take little tidbits. So it's not like he and I do things super different, or, or a lot of the people we train with. There's not super major differences. It's just, boy, I like that. I like how that helped that dog. I'm going to use that because I've got a dog similar to that. It's struggling with that, and I bet that would help him. That's a lot of what we run into. So Yeah, there's, there's little things that you're going to see on a particular dog. If you look at the average dog that's progressing at a normal rate, like every other dog that's not having hang-ups, you're going to see most everybody that uses a, you know, a rec car-based, training program like we use and for those listeners out there that don't you know don't know who rex car is rex car was sort of the father of a force patch and all of the modern day training principles that we use today and and you know that's the way he taught and you know he taught force patch you know very similar to the way we teach it and pile work t-work and and swim by and water force and, and all these things the same way and so you know, there's, there's certain things that I don't think change 
over the years that just work. Um, and, you know, most the trainers that I hang out with have similar, you know, philosophies and ways of training. I don't hang out with a trainer that, that doesn't use, you know, that's against using e-collars or that's against force fencing. Not that there's anything wrong with that. That's the way they want to do it. That's fine. But all of my friends use it. All the guys I train with and learn from, you know, they use these things and, you know, these different ways of, of using pressure uh, to get a desired result of a, you know, of a command or, or a drill that we're teaching. And so there's not a whole lot of differences. There's, there's subtle things that, you know, different trainers do to, to get, a, you know, the, the same result. Um, but I think at the end of the day, the foundations are, are very similar. So what do we'll you think back makes you on the fourth time I'm here, Kevin, and we'll talk about the differences. <laughs> we can do that. Uh, so what do you think? I guess maybe separates like not good trainers and bad trainers, but maybe some that might be a little bit more experienced, or and maybe that's just the answer is that people are more experienced. But like, if everybody kind of does things the same way, why are you so much better than Bob? Well, there's a lot of reasons I'm better than Bob, but. We won't go into that tonight. Um, to, to answer your question, I think it's it's patience and taking your time and not, you know, it, a lot of trainers, I think, in their experience, rush through some of these, you know, things that are so important in a dog's foundational training. And, you know, if, we had a, if I had a message to send to the amateur trainers out there or the you know, the, the guys just starting out is don't be in a rush. Train the dog that you have. That dog has different needs and, you know, you need, need to present things in a slower way for you than maybe this dog needs and you need to train the dog you have. Don't worry about how young and how fast another dog is moving. You know, they're different dogs. At the end of their days and at the end of the training, they might turn out to be the same exact dog, but maybe it took a little longer to get to that point. And I think some trainers get too caught up in trying to get it done in a certain amount of time and, and getting a title at a certain age. And, and so in doing so, you create holes in the dog's training. And those holes will inevitably always pop up. And you can see it in a dog. When someone comes and day trains that has been training on their own, you'll see something the dog's doing wrong. And I can ask the question, well, did you do this early on? Well, no, I didn't think it was that big of a deal. And I'll say, well, that's why it was a big deal. That's why you're struggling with what you're struggling with today, because you didn't think it was a big deal. And so these good programs that you can buy as a, an amateur to follow, these you know really comprehensive programs, there's a reason for every step. And you need to go through every single step and make sure you don't fully understand each step before moving on to the next one. Take your time. So one, one conversation Blaine and I had the other day was DVDs, training DVDs that on a night like tonight we could throw on and watch and, and enjoy and talk about and discuss. And there are so many out there, and we talked about Evan Graham and his uh, SmartWorks DVD. We talked about Mike Lardy, uh, and Mike Lardy has had some seminars with 
Danny Farmer, um, Dennis Boyd. What are, who else? This Aiken we talked about. We talked about uh, Rick Stowski with Sound Dog. A lot of different videos that, I, that have great, you know, great tools and great information for any trainer to get going with their dogs. Right. Bill Hillman is another one. So there's so many resources. I mean, you're listening to a resource. We have tons of great pros that are talking about swim by and all this good stuff. You're already consuming to improve yourself. Let's list off some of the DVDs that you think are worth 50 bucks, a hundred bucks, whatever they find online. What would you suggest someone who wants to go, you know, we're not talking like for me, if you want a ready to hunt duck dog, I truly believe Chris Aiken's duck dog basics one and two will get you from eight weeks to your first duck season seamless. It's fun to watch. It's easy. And you can do it. They don't show a lot of maybe the mishaps that you could have, but it's a good DVD. Now let's say you want to, your goal is to have a master hunter. That's, that's some next level stuff. What would you suggest Blaine? I always try to turn people on to, and I don't know the man other than, you know, reading him and, and watching his videos back in the day, but I love Evan Grant's smart work series for people, especially the first time trainer. <clears throat> Not that his is much different than what Chris Aiken is teaching or what any of the other guys are teaching. Um, I just think that Evan Graham's smart work is super, super detailed and goes through every little nook and cranny of each you know, part of the training that gives somebody that has never trained a dog before in their life, never had a duck dog, never been around it. If they would follow every single thing that he says, they could make a great dog. They can make a master hunter. They could, you know, have a potential field trial dog. Um, I think his is, I think his is the most deep and comprehensive of all the uh, videos available. You know, whereas some of the programs, from start to finish is two DVDs. You know, Evan Graham's going to have, he has a, a DVD just on swim by. He has two DVDs just on force fence, a DVD on puppy, you know, a DVD on transition into handling. And, and so there's, you know, a lot more material for the new handler, new trainer to, you know, soak up a ton of information from. He just gets into, you know, small details. But I think, you know, we take for granted as, you know, people that train multiple dogs um, that the new guy doesn't understand. Yeah. And I think one point that Kevin made was experience. And the difference between the guy who's been doing it for one dog, 10 dogs, 100 dogs, and 20 years experience. The knowledge from zero to 20 years is fast. And that's where I, I think I was trying to make the point of little tidbits. We do swim by the same way, but I watch you and it's like, he's probably done a hundred more swim by dogs than me. And he's got a little bit something that makes this transition easier. What can I be a sponge for to make my life easier, to make the dog's life easier and to make a better dog in the end? We don't do it different. He just has little things that make it easier on everybody. Does that make sense? Yeah, great sense. 
and I think you need to put yourself in position to be around some people that even if it's the same drill and they're doing, you know, 80% of it the same way, there might be one little thing they do with one particular dog that is going to fit your dog. That's going to make your dog do it easier and better. And, you know, I think it still goes back to the thoroughness and making sure this dog knows what it's doing. I heard a guy, an amateur trainer at a hunt test a few weeks ago at a master test said this, and it, it makes great sense. He says that a amateur trainer sometimes trains the dog until he gets it right. A professional trainer trains the dog until he can't do it wrong. Right. It's a big difference. You know, I'm not doing it. The dog does it the first time right. I'm not stopping. I'm doing it until he can't do it wrong. The only way he can do it is the right way. And I've got more time. I realize that. And Bob's got more time. And, you know, these other guys that, that train dogs all day, every day, they have time to, you know, to, to solidify these things, to make sure this dog understands, you know, in swim by particular. When I give you that cast, get over it, back in the water, get your butt back in the water, you swim. You know, that's, that's a non-negotiable get in the water. You know, I'm not going to stop the first time the dog does it right. We're going to make sure it knows what it's doing. All right, so good transition back into swim by, because I think what I'd like people to see is in their brain, what does it look like when a dog is done, when they can't do it wrong? What is that dog doing? And then, and then we do water blinds. Okay. Well, for me, it's when I give that leftover and that dog gets out, gets to that pile of bumpers, gets the bumper in its mouth, I'm no longer blowing whistle to sit so that it looks at me and I have to cast it back in the water. But it's going to get out, get the bumper, and it jumps its ass back in the water and starts swimming across the pond. You know, there's that compulsion again to get back in the water. And it doesn't take pressure. It's just instantaneous. I get the bumper. I get back in the water. I know I'm swimming back across this pond because that's where I'm supposed to be. And so it's got to be just instinct. The dog knows this is where it's going. And it doesn't mean I'm done. I've, I've made my pond in such a way so that when it swims across, so let's back up a minute. We're given a leftover. We pick up the bumper. We get back in the pond and we're swimming right to the right over pond. Well, when they get to that right over pile, there's water on the other side of that pile. And so I want the dog to get out where that right over pile is and then jump back in the water and keep swimming over. And if they don't, I'm going to stop them and cast them into that water and make them swim to the next piece of land. And so I want it to be, you know, not that, that, you know, the first time they get to land, they're done. No, there's water on the other side of land. Get back in that piece of water. And so for me, that's when I know I'm done. When they're going to swim across, get out, and like, oh, crap, i got to get back in the water. And they jump back in. They keep swimming towards the dam, you know, and vice versa the other side. I've got the same situation on the other side where they're going to, you know, swim the leftover, get out, get back in, and there's an island. Get on that island, get your butt off that island, get back in the water. And so when they have that compulsion, that desire to be in the water, then we're going to move on, and we're not going to move on to – just straight up water blind, we're going to teach a channel blind. And so we can get into that. I guess that would be the, the next segue into uh, the training. 
Very good. Well, I think that's where we're going to truly end it. Oh, somebody's calling me. Tom, Tom Conley's calling me. I usually have my phone on silent, guys. I'm so sorry. Uh, Tom Conley and I lived in Ireland together. He's a good, good friend of mine. Never really talked to him much, so it's funny that he's calling me. There's also other funny stories about Tom Conley that we could get into on another podcast. We, prob- we probably won't, though. No, we probably won't. So, anyways, um, I think we can have another podcast in the future where we talk about next steps of water and channel blinds and teaching all different concepts like that. And I mean, I'm still going to be here at Blaine's for a while. So we're going to have him back on the podcast. Um, but what I want to, I, I think my main takeaway that I want people to remember is this is a segment in your program where you're building more blocks for the future. If you breeze through it and they do it right once and you move on, you're creating holes in your program and you're going to have negative consequences later on in your dog's career, hunting, hunt tests, field trials, whatever your goals are, there's going to be negative consequences if you breeze over it. I think pretty thorough discussion on it. I think Evan Graham's DVD, uh, the SmartWorks DVD is a good example of swim by uh, as well as force to water. So expand your knowledge, everybody. Keep tuning in to the Lone D Gundog Chronicles. I want to give a big thank you to the Pterodactyl. Blaine Tarnecki, Hudson River Retrievers. Kevin, thank you for joining us tonight. Always a good time. And until the next episode, until the next episode, stay breezy. Hey, do me a solid. If you enjoy the show, if you enjoy our Instagram, if we've helped you at all, join patreon.com forward slash lone duck outfitters. If you do it before September of 2023, you're going to enter to win a hunt with me and Kevin and a bunch of other Patreon members down in Missouri. We're going to smack some ducks, have some fun, do a seminar with our dogs and have a great time. But jump into patreon.com forward slash lone duck outfitters. Links in the description and join the community that helps me help you help your dog. Hey listeners, Nick Larson here, host of the Bird Shop Podcast. As fans of this show, you may be interested in the conversations on the Bird Shop Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting, from upland birds and their habitat and conservation to the shotguns, bird dogs, and gear used to pursue them. Whether you're a seasoned upland hunter or just getting started and wanting to learn more, I interview a wide range of guests, each with their own unique perspective and valuable experience to share. If you're on the hunt for more upland hunting conversation, please consider subscribing to the Bird Shop Podcast today. Thank you.